Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hi, I'm Ethan Suplee. Welcome to American Glutton. Outside of acting, my two favorite things to do are diet and eat. I have a very complicated relationship with food, and on this podcast, we're going to talk about all of it. Food as entertainment. Food as sport. Food as fuel. I'll talk to experts and the average person, just like you and me. I hate to ask you to do anything, but if you're enjoying the show... Please take a moment to like, subscribe, rate, review, all of the above on whatever app you're getting it from. Today on American Glutton, my guest is Doug Bobst. He is the host of the Adversity Advantage podcast. You can find him on Instagram at Doug Bobst. Doug Bobst, welcome to the American Glutton podcast. Ethan, thanks for having me, man. Dude, you have a really interesting story, and I just really want to share it with the people who listen to my podcast, but you say going to prison was one of, or if not the best thing that ever happened to you. Please tell me this story. It was because when I entered uh, my incarceration for felony drug charges, I was heavily addicted to opiates. I was doing hundreds of milligrams of Oxycontin per day. I was selling tons of pot to not only support my habit, but to also make money. Um, I was a convicted felon. Like I mentioned, I was hopeless. I was having suicidal thoughts, tons of anxiety. Um, and, and, and really, I was just emotionally, spiritually, physically, and mentally broken. Um, but what ended up happening to me was when I entered the gates of the detention center, I cried because I didn't want to go in for obvious reasons. And when I left, I cried because I didn't want to leave. Yeah, dude, I, I experienced that a little bit um, leaving rehab for the last time where I was just like, I mean, it's it's scary because like, oh, my God, I've I've kind of figured out life within these parameters, within these confines and with these barriers set up, I can do life really well. And I'm and I'm working this program. And then like. It's like I'm leaving these this structure it's it's scary it's bittersweet there's a lot to leaving something like that 
There is, right? Because as you'll hear in a second, like the only thing that um was different for me was um was different for me like in as far as like staying clean and staying away from drugs and and getting myself my act together was my cellmate who helped me transform my life. And so when I entered jail, the first thing I had to do was kick opiates cold turkey for the first few weeks which I'm sure as you know, and maybe even your listeners know, it's like having the worst case of the flu, like uncontrollable bowel movements, massive aches and pains that you didn't know existed, you know, anxiety, depression, sleepless nights. Um, but the the thing that really um, was transformative for me as far as like the, one of the feelings that you would experience is like this feeling that you were trying to crawl out of your own skin and you're trying to like leave your body, Right. And the reason I say it was transformative is because now, like looking back, I think it was like really God, the universe, whatever you call it, like trying to force the old version of me outside of me. So the whole, the the new me could become whole. And so as I'm detoxing through Oxy, my soon to be cellmate is sitting um, at one of the tables playing Scrabble and he looks at me, he's like, Hey man, what are you doing here? And then like, I kind of gave this very like low tone answer, like, Hey, I'm just in here because of, you know, drugs or whatever. And he was like, okay, man. And he could just tell that I was unconfident. You know, I was 50 pounds heavier than I am now. I had low self-esteem and just was my shoulders rounded forward. And, you know, like I said, head was down, didn't talk too loud. And he said to me, he's like, you're going to start working out with me when you get through your detox. And I looked at him. I was like, there's no way in hell I'm going to do that. Because at the the time I could have been a model for Pillsbury. I was like, there's no way. And um and Eric looked like, looked like a more jacked version of Brad Pitt from Fight Club is how I like to describe him just to give some context. And later on that that day, I saw him. Or not too long after that, I saw him work out, and he was doing thousands of push ups, hundreds of pull ups, like running all over the common area. I was like, who the hell is this guy? And and shortly after that, there was a conversation that happened in the cell that would change my life. And so him and I are talking and. He was asking me more questions about my story. He's like, you know, why are you in here? I'm like, well, my parents got divorced and girls rejected me and kids bullied me and I got cut from all these sports teams. And he looks at me, he's like, quit being a bitch. And I said to him, I'm like, what do you mean? Because at that in that moment, like I wanted to be coddled and be like, it's okay, Dougie. Like, you know, the world's against you. Like it's everybody else's fault. But he's like, dude, you're blaming everybody else for your problems, but yourself. He was like, there's plenty of people that were in your circumstances and aren't in jail, right, Doug? And I'm like, yep. He's like, you chose to get yourself here. He's like, you have two choices. You can be a man, look yourself in the mirror and know that it's up to you to change the future of your life. Like nobody's coming to save you. Or he's like, you can be a bitch, go cry in the corner and say, woe is me and blame everybody else for your problems and feel sorry for yourself. He's like, most people will do that. So of course, the last thing I wanted to do was to be a bitch, right? <laughs> and um, and also like I, I had this like kind of aha moment because the drugs at that point had been you know out of my system and was starting to get through like a little bit. Of, like, I started to get through the days that I was in, and I was like, you know what? Like I clearly don't have everything figured out. I've had I, at that point I was 21 years old. I had 21 jobs. I was in this mental health, my own mental health crisis. I was you know heavily addicted to drugs before that and selling drugs. So I knew that like, man, like clearly what I was doing before wasn't working. Let's try something else. And that inspired me to, to start working out in jail. And when I started to work out, I I could barely hold myself up to do a push up from my knees, could hardly walk up and down the steps. But with his 
motivation training me in there every single day during my 90 day sentence. I was able to do a set of 10 pushups and run a mile by the time um, it was all said and done. And it was super transformative to me. I mean, it taught me a lot of things that I need, that I needed to learn to be taught, like the importance of self-discipline, like really like following through with the things I said I was going to do. It taught me the importance of, you know, getting comfortable, being uncomfortable because, you know, you and I talked about this on my podcast, but before I went to jail, I, I couldn't embrace discomfort at all. Anytime I would get stressed, I'd do a drug. Every time I was anxious, I would do a drug. Every time I would, you know, get into a fight with somebody, I would do a drug, whatever it was. And so I wasn't used to dealing with my emotions. And in jail, there's nowhere to run. There's nowhere to hide. I wasn't the, t- the type of person that was going to get into a bunch of fights. So, you know, me running my mouth when I was, when I was upset, wasn't going to work for me. You know, obviously access to drugs isn't, isn't what it is on the streets in jail. So all these things that prevented me from escaping where I really had to look myself in the mirror and figure out how do I deal with these emotions in a healthy way. So that was helpful. And the other thing was just like, like really establishing this belief in myself that I think was just, it was there, you know, before it was just so buried down because of all the stuff that had happened in my life. And obviously a lot of the stuff that I did to myself that I found that belief in myself again. And it was just very transformative for me to, to be able to get motivated to finally take the, the initial steps to, to start to transform my life. And so the day I left jail, I cried because I didn't want to leave because like, again, this guy had come into my life with no skin in the game as far as my life and, and chose to really help save my life while I was in jail. And so I said to him, I'm like, how can I ever repay you? And he told me not to mess up and to pay it forward. And he gave me a workout plan that I still have framed in my place today. So I never forget where I came from, got out, stayed on the path, you know, lost a bunch of weight, became a trainer to help other people transform their lives. And like the rest is history. I mean, a lot's happened in between then, but that's really the story of how, how jail, you know, transformed my life. Dude, it's so amazing. You said so many things in there that I want to take up. Like, first of all, I think, I think his skin in the game is literally like, he's saving his life by saving your life. You you know what I mean? Like that's his skin in the game is like, he has to be responsible for you also in order for you to be responsible for yourself, to change, to keep him on track, whatever that means. That's like how I'm relating to it. Like what's your skin in the game today? Your skin in the game today is still saving yourself. That's why you do this. Right. Um, Another thing you said is, is the, the piece on personal responsibility, you know, there's so many discussions on personal responsibility and so many people want to talk about nuance and how there there are environmental factors and and fine that that's all true fine i think that it's perspective that's all it is you cannot say objectively that any person has zero responsibility in any situation right objectively there If they're there, they got themselves there. Somehow there is some portion that they contributed to. But I think that the more that that the, the responsibility needed to progress, to change is entirely personal. And so in order to do that, why not just look at everything as I put myself here? Do you know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, you could fucking spend a lot of time sitting around splitting hairs over why McDonald's is 
partially responsible for your condition. Where does that get you? It gets you nowhere. It does not handle your condition. Your condition is entirely within you to handle. And maybe you need a guy like Eric. Eric is his name, right? Yeah. Or someone like you today to start talking about how it was entirely your burden to solve, your burden to fight through so that another guy can go like, I see that. As long as I'm thinking about what somebody has done to me, I can't get better. You can't move on from that point. If, if it's somebody else's doing, even if you get hit by a car and you have to do a bunch of physical therapy, the guy whose car hit you, he can't do the physical therapy for you. You have to do the physical therapy. It's up to you to get better. So why not take on the entire burden of responsibility and go, I did all of it. So I am all powerful and I can change whatever the fuck I want. I just think it's like a better position to take to take charge from, you know? Absolutely. And I think the moment you give your power away to, to somebody else or something else, like it's over, right? Yeah. I mean, the game over. I think it's hard for people. Again, I'm not, you know, I'm not justifying that kind of behavior. I think it's hard for people to look themselves in the mirror and understand that they there's work that needs to be done when they're in a low place in their life because their life is already so bad that it's like they don't have the confidence or the the level of secureness to look themselves in the mirror and say you know what like I got some work I need to do because when they're in that place it's like there's so many other things that are going wrong in their life that the last thing they want to be able to do the, well the last thing they want to do is to have to say you know what there's other things in my life that I need to fix but you're right like the only way out, the only way is to take full responsibility because nobody's coming to save you. And, you know, and, and, you know, throughout the course of my life, I was looking for things to save me in, in healthy and unhealthy ways, right? Like when I was younger, I was looking for, for substances. I was looking for the validation I got from selling drugs. I was looking for, you know, you know, being able to fit in with certain crowds to come and save me from my own brokenness. And obviously that got me to jail, but even after I got out of jail, I I looked for validation in from like vanity and like the way I looked or getting attention from girls or success or money or whatever it was to save me from like doing the actual work. And it wasn't until I, I like looked myself in the mirror and said, you know what? Like none of this stuff matters. Like none of this stuff matters for your long-term happiness and fulfillment if you're not happy with yourself on the inside if you're not doing the work because while like fitness is important relationships are important success is important all those things are they have some level of importance but when you're using those things to dictate how you feel about yourself it's a very very slippery slope and that's why i've really had to reevaluate even like the last few years, my relationship with fitness and health. Not that I don't exercise frequently because I do, I work, I still work out five, six days a week, but it got to a place like where I was constantly looking at myself in the mirror to say, okay, like, do I still have my eight pack? Do I still have my six pack? Do I still have all the abs? Like, are my arms getting bigger? Like, how come I don't have any, as many veins today, or I'm stepping on the scale and you know, traveling on airplanes with food. And and for me, that became really unhealthy because I was isolating myself from 
other people. And I was hiding from the fact that I, there were still a lot of insecurities inside of me that I, that I needed to deal with. Yeah. Yeah. No, I know. I totally get that. Like my personal physical goals have utterly shifted. Like I still like to have the, uh, the, the hint of abs in the right lighting, you know, if I, if I, there's uh, in my shower, there's a perfect light spotlighting down lighting. Right. And if, if I see myself with no abs in the morning, when I'm taking a shower, I'm like, what the hell is going on? This is out of control. But like, there's a difference between that and preparing for a photo shoot, which, which takes like six weeks of really, really hard work to get veins to show up in my abdomen. You know what I mean? And and that's the kind of thing where it's just like, how do I want to live my life forever? Y you know, I've lost 300 pounds. Um, if I'm if I'm not under or around 10 percent body fat, that's OK. You know, right. it's it's OK to to not be the leanest version of me that's possible. It's OK to be within the band of, quote unquote, healthy body fat percentage, you know. Yeah, and I'm glad you brought up like getting ready for a photo shoot because that that is totally different than like that what life. I was. That's not yeah. life. Yeah, yeah. What I was dealing with was like years of this. It wasn't just like a period of months. This was like years of me being afraid of eating anything that wasn't in the typical like bodybuilding physique meal plan. And my logic for this was, I was so scared of going back to that version of myself that who I was before jail that I was like, all right, if I eat pizza, that's what old fat Doug would do. So does that mean that I'm going to become that person? Or if I eat ice cream, like I'm going to do this. And, and so I just became so afraid of becoming, of going back to that old version of myself that I just stayed away from all that stuff. Plus I was continuing to chase like the next thing, the next rush with my vanity, because I thought that as a kid, like, the things that made me most miserable as a kid were girls picking on me or and rejecting me, my weight and how I looked in the mirror and the fact that I just didn't see myself as successful. So I thought that, well, the opposite must be true, that if I get ripped, I'll get attention and I'll be happy that if I get attention from girls, I'll be happy. If I have success, I'll be happy. And so I started to get ripped but I still wasn't happy. So yeah. I'm like, well, maybe I'm just not ripped enough. So then I got to get more ripped and more ripped. And it becomes this lose-lose game to where you start to realize like, A, you've lied to yourself for years because <laughs> you've chased this thing that just doesn't exist, right? And B, it's like, what am I doing? Like, is this really what happiness looks like is sitting in my room on a Friday and Saturday night and eating tilapia and broccoli and not going out with my with my friends, not having a social life. Like, is that what this is supposed to be about? And, you know, it took some time because I had this level of cognitive dissonance that, you know, I know, you know, Mark Wahlberg, and I've been told a lot through the years that I look like Mark. And when I first got told that in my like mid twenties or early twenties or whatever, um, after I lost all the weight, I didn't believe it. Or I thought it was an insult because when I was a kid, I was called all kinds of names. I was told I looked like people that, you know, in my mind weren't attractive. So I was like, I don't look like that. There's no way. Like, I don't, there's no way I see it. Yet everybody would tell me that. And I still saw this, like the fat version of me when I looked in the mirror, even though all the weight was gone. I don't know if you can relate to this, but I still saw that person in the mirror. And 
it wasn't until I started going to like therapy and understanding that that was all kind of normal based on, you know, growing up and then being bullied and picked on. Again, I'm not blaming that for anything. I think that's just the reality of when you're bullied and picked on and you see yourself a certain way, you start to believe that and your brain just gets hardwired from a young age to, to see that. Um, and so through therapy, I was able to a understand why that was normal. And then that made me feel a little bit better that that was normal. And then I could, you know, work through it through, you know, affirmations, writing down, like literally like what type of person I was before I went to jail and then writing down who I am now, like really talking to people that I trusted to get their honest opinion on the way I looked. And, you know, over time and doing that work consistently, I started to really shift and see myself as somebody who was a completely different person. Yeah. I, I, I relate to this so much. Um, my cousin recently sent me a picture, uh, that he, one of, one of his, I think his sister posted on Facebook or something and it. And it's all of us when we were children. So it's like early eighties. And I look at this kid and I'm like, why the fuck would that kid for a second have any body issues? There's not one thing that I could be critical of him for. And it's a picture of myself. And and my my entire childhood is plagued with the memory of feeling like I don't fit in, like I my body is wrong, like I'm fat, like I'm grotesque. And I look at this kid and I'm like, it's just not true. So I think a lot of that, I think many people are experiencing that. And for some of us, it's worse than for others. And you know the people who who actually are truly vain you know i think they're probably working at their physiques pretty hard you know what i mean and yeah. and and like for some of us it, it takes more work and, and i i'm so glad you started seeing somebody and talking about this and cutting yourself some slack because i think that's important too you know i think that somebody who's 500 pounds has a decent road in front of them of diligence and consistency, right? And building habits and all of that. But at the same time, I think that that, that aspect of whatever they're dealing with doesn't have to be forever. And that there should come a point where they get to where you're at, where it's like, okay, a slice of pizza is not going to end my life. I've lost hundreds of pounds. You know what I mean? Yeah. And I, I just wish that um, pizza and ice cream and all that stuff, um, you know, didn't contain a lot of the stuff that it contains so that it wouldn't change your weight that much when you woke up in the morning, because I would eat like a couple slices of pizza, which probably was only like 800 calories. Right. And then I would get up in the morning and I'd be like 10 pounds heavier. And I'd be like, what the fuck? Like, yeah. what the hell did I do? Right. And of course, then your mind starts to go to, well, wait, did I really gain 10 pounds? Or, I mean, I know that it's, it said 800 calories, but why is the scale up? And then you're, you start to believe that, that actually, that will actually contribute to that much weight gain. And what you don't understand is it contains tons of, you know, salt and, you know, fat and all this stuff that can bloat you. Right. And carbs and stuff like that. And especially for somebody who doesn't eat carbs or wasn't eating a lot of carbs, I should say back in the day. Right. Your muscles are <laughs> sucking up that glycogen, right? It's like probably developed zero fat from the pizza at all, but your muscles are full and like, uh, so happy with the carbs, you know? Yeah. But 
you know, I'm, I'm glad that we're talking about this because I think a lot of people, they, they struggle with looking for that thing to come and like fix them. Yeah. You know, and, and I know you've been there. I've, I've been there. I think a lot of people obviously have in that, you know, I thought that in order for me to be liked by people and to be able to get a girlfriend or to be able to like be valued by people that I needed to look a certain way. Um, and I started to do stuff for other people. I started to seek validation because I wanted to get the approval from others, not because I wanted it to do it myself. It was more for other people. And then you end up getting lost and you end up losing track of who you really are and what you actually like value about yourself and what you want to do in your life. Yeah. And, and I would, I would, I would suspect that the majority of the people that we're talking about are talking to who have, uh, whether it's body dysmorphia or legitimate things about their body that they want to change that are changeable, they don't consider themselves who they are to be based on the worth of their body. Right. And so uh, uh, this idea that you are going to therefore have more value because you change your body. It's just like a silly thing. Like I'm the exact same way. I always thought as a kid, like a girl could love me if she just got to know me, but they'll never get to know me because I have this body that I have. So I have to get a good body in order for a girl to love me. It was just, it's just nonsense. Yeah. And the problem is like, I think a lot of times when we're in those situations, like we, when we don't love ourselves or we don't trust ourselves or whatever that the example is, it's hard for other people to do the same with us. Right. And so I've, I found that to be the case, like again, around the same time where I was still dealing with a lot of the darkness from my past. I mean, sure. I had stayed away from the drugs I was abusing. Sure. I had, you know, built a career out of what happened to me in, in jail. Like all that stuff was true but I still hadn't forgiven myself for what I had done in the past. I still hadn't forgiven my parents. Like I had so much resentment towards my mom for kicking me out when I was 16, when she caught me with weed, I had resentment towards her for, and what I felt like she wasn't there for me when I needed her the most. Now, again, like looking back now, it's like her and I have a great relationship and I know she was doing the best she could with the tools that she had because you know, I tell people like people have to remember, like this is nearly 20 years ago when she kicked me out, like mental health, addiction, like all this stuff wasn't talked about like it is now. Now it's front and center, I would say, of most everybody's minds. And so I had resentment towards her for that. I had resentment towards her for even when I got out of jail initially, I felt like she still wasn't like believing me, right? Because as addicts, it's like we could screw up for 10 years and the minute we're clean or sober, whatever, the, whatever you are for 10 days, we expect everybody to fully trust us again. Right. And it's just, well, not yeah. And I don't, don't you think we also spend a lot of times lying to people yeah. in the buildup to that? Like I, I know from when I was an addict and dealing with addicts today, um, which isn't super common, but it happens like a person who hasn't really gotten some sober time under their belt. They're just liars. They're right. just, they're lying. They're, they're first lying to themselves because I think they're actually what they're saying to you. They believe, but you just can't, I just, I just take it with a grain of salt, you know, like somebody who's seven days sober, who's trying to tell me their entire, they figured it all out and they're fine now. And like, 
they're they're doing great. Give them all the responsibility and trust back that you would to somebody who never had those problems. I, I, I'm keeping them at arm's length because I think it takes a while to really build that foundation of responsibility. Hundred percent. And I think that when people are like just yearning for that instant validation from family and friends right away, it's like they they there's still work to do that to know that. You know, they shouldn't expect anything from anybody and that if they're looking for validation right away, that it's like, all right, like, how are you truly feeling about yourself and where you're going? Because you're, you're, you're trying to convince somebody that your life is fully turned around when a logical person would say, there's no way, right? It's been three days or th three weeks or whatever. And so what it forced me to really do as far as my mom is I knew that there was nothing I could personally do to make her like like me or or show love in a certain way. Nothing. The only thing I could do is work on my side of the street, right? And make sure that I was doing everything that I possibly could every single day to improve myself, to improve my life, to improve the way I managed stress, to improve the way I communicated with people, um, to be able to get to a place where when she was ready, we were able to come and have a conversation that you know, it was transformative in our relationship where we, we essentially sat down over dinner one night and we were just talking and, and she was like, you know, is there anything you wish I would have done differently? Like with how I handled things. And at that point I had been again, working on myself for a bit of time. So it wasn't like, well, you fucked me up. You shouldn't have. Done. It was like, I was like, mom, you know, I understand you just did like the best you could. I was like, I honestly just wish you would have, un you would have just asked me like, why? Like, why am I doing those things? Because deep down, I was really struggling, you know, from the, the bullying in the school really, really impacted me. I mean, I was people would my nick one of my nicknames was Down Syndrome Doug in, in grade school. And and so I had started to convince myself that there was something wrong with me. Cause I was like, why are these kids calling me this? Like I I think I'm pretty smart. Like I'm not, you know, act. I didn't think that it made sense, but I'm like, well, maybe I am right, and so and there was other things that I was called and and stuff, and that made me want to check out because I was ex experiencing so much pain. And then, you know, other things like not making the sports teams when I love sports, and just my even my family, some of my family relationships that were impacting me. And so, because I was a teenager, and it's like <laughs> you're not really taught how to open up and share stuff like that. Um, you know, that was something that I just wish we could have had a better conversation on. And, and who knows if, if she'd even asked me that, if I had been willing to share, but you know, the fact that she asked me what she could have done differently, then I'm like coming to her and being like, you know, here's what I would have done differently. And then yeah. you're able to say, cause it's like, what I've, what I've learned is, you know, I was ready to say, I was sorry. And I have to forgive my mom for, for a long time, but I, I feel like we wait until the other person does it first. And it's like, as soon as they do it, then it's like, well, yeah, yeah I'm sorry too. Right. Um, and so that was something that, that really helped me let go of a lot of the painful moments of my past was knowing that I could have a decent relationship with my mom again. And with my dad, my dad and I, you know, we've never really seen eye to eye and specifically when I was younger. And it just got to the point where, you know, I love my dad. And I think that without, him, I wouldn't, you know, be where I'm at today. It's because it's, it's like what I haven't valued in relationships when I was a kid. I now have learned like what I actually want and don't want when I get older. And I've just learned to just accept him for, for who he is and then just have the best relationship I can. Um, because before I just would resent him and was 
I was filled with deep anger, but it took a lot of work and therapy and, and learning to forgive him. And then also know that like, I'm also flawed, right? In that I'm a hypocrite. If I'm expecting people to forgive me, if I continue to mess up or I do things out of character, but yet I'm not willing to do the same for other people. So all of that was stuff that became very helpful in me coming to terms with a lot of stuff that happened to me in my past. Yeah. I mean, it, 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 I think like. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. You know, I, I, I wanted sobriety to fix me. I wanted a diet to fix me. I wanted, I, I expected many times for m- all of my issues to be resolved by taking part in some other thing. And, and then, you know, I think there's some sense of peace and going like, I'm, I'm a work in progress forever. You know, yeah. like this is not whatever's going on might get better, but I don't think it's ever going to go away completely. It's or it's going to constantly take some kind of work or effort or something like that. And, and I think that that's really powerful to be able to go back and forgive people, you know, and have those, those conversations are, are super, super helpful. I, I think that contributes to personal growth quite a bit. It does because like you begin to, once you understand, once you understand the process of forgiveness, and like you said, that we're this continuous work of progress, you begin to accept the fact that none of us are perfect. And I think we're all doing the the best we can most of the time with like the tools we have, the self, the level of self-awareness we have, the level of self-esteem that we have. And you just learn to understand people more. Yeah. You know, it was really profound when, when I became a parent and there was a point, you know, it wasn't when my kids were babies, but when, when you start to recognize that this thing that you consider has been 
entirely of your shaping, right? You're first of all, it's your progeny biologically you've contributed to creating it. And then through your actions and behaviors, um, you've contributed to it, its upbringing. And, and so there's this idea, like it's my thing that like, you know, almost like if you were doing a drawing or something, right. And, and you're like, wait a second, this drawing is drawing itself also. And there was a point where I had to go like, Oh, my kids are also human beings and people and their ideas and ideals are not going to sync up with mine perfectly that I was also able in that moment to apply that to my parents because I never really thought of my parents as human beings. They were my parents. Um, and I held a lot of, uh, I think, animosity towards certain things that they had done to me. And if I looked at what I considered they had done to me through the lens of parents trying to raise kids, it became a lot easier for me to go like, oh, I, I get it. No, I get it. They did the best they could as people with kids from their point of view, from their perspective. They were doing what they were supposed to do. Um, and that doesn't mean that that's how I have to do it. And that doesn't mean that the way I do it is the way my kids have to do it. Because again, I'm a person separate from my parents and my kids are people separate from me also. I don't know. It was it was a lot for me to bestow humanity upon my parents. You know what I mean? And go like uh, beyond just my parents, your your people and people have all kinds of shit going on. That's imperfect. There's no perfect person. Yeah, hundred percent. And I think I'm so glad that you're where you brought that up because I think that you know so many times, especially I think when. Like when I started to do personal development, for instance, and I started to get into health and fitness, I assumed that everybody else should behave like me. I believe that everybody else should be going to therapy. Everybody else should be like working on their level of self-awareness and all, all these other things that happens when you like embark on that journey. And the reality is like, there's a lot of people that's just not, that's just not going to be what they want to do. And that's okay. Right. And that we're all different and we all have different interests and we all have different things that make us tick. And it also as I like got further down the path, I, I realized that everybody's human and we all make mistakes and people, there's plenty of things that I did in my past and the way I treated other people that um, I would be so embarrassed to, to say some of the things that I did. And so if I'm saying that, then how am I, how am I, how can I, you know, judge somebody else for some of the mistakes that they made in their past? And I just think that we, the more you understand that we're all human and that we're all doing the best you can, the more you begin to not only understand how to forgive somebody, but to not take things so personally. Yeah. Yeah. The, the, the wildest thing as a parent again, and, and, and this also comes through being a sober person who has had many conversations with many other sober people is like, man, I can, I can think of the worst shit that I've done that is completely embarrassing and makes me feel like I, I'm an unforgivable person. And then I can have a conversation with somebody where they where they are able to take that in, digest it and go, 
wow, here's, well, here's what I got. And then tell me a story that's even worse. Right. And so, you know, with my kids, I'm just like, listen, I want open communication. Mm -hmm. There's nothing you can tell me that is, is going to, you know, I suppose somebody could come home, you know, one of my daughters could come home and tell me like, by the way, I'm in a gang and I just did a drive by shooting and I might fall out of my chair <laughs> with shock. You know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. But like, I don't really foresee that happening. And so within the realm of what's going on with typical adolescents, I'm like, I was also an adolescent. I also did crazy shit. And like, I'm not going to react in a, in a crazy way. Like that's the other thing. Like the, the day I realized that my father had also been an 18 year old guy with all the shit that 18 year old guys do, he had always just been this, this figure for me that was like beyond reproach. He went to work. He never drank. Um, he was decent and moral and like, you didn't fuck with him. You know what I mean? You got in big trouble if you didn't follow the rules. And and so like a guy like that, I couldn't picture also having broken rules as a kid. I couldn't picture him as a kid. And so when my kids have anything, it, it's really an interesting conversation of going like, hey, I'm not going to judge you and get mad at you and and tell you you're a bad person. Like, let's just have a conversation as two people. What's going on and, and what are your thoughts and where do you feel you fucked up that I can possibly help you with without just making you feel like garbage, you know? Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really cool that you've been able to develop this level of like awareness and just understanding around parenting around kids so that you can acknowledge a like, um, how your father was, but then also in the same conversation, know like certain things that you might do differently, right. With your kids. And I think that's an important place to be where you can, I mean, cause a lot of times what happens is there's two extremes. There's the, just blame the sole blaming of the parents. Right. And then that becomes like an excuse for other behavior in the future. Or there's like the, the other side where it's like, well, um, I'm just going to do what my parents did because that's just the way that I'm wired. Right. And I think two things can be true. I think that you can acknowledge that your parents acted a certain way and that probably did, you know, contribute to your wiring and conditioning, whatever you would call it, but you can also change and do things differently while also understanding that however you were raised, you know, the, the parent, your parents were human. Yeah. It, it was for me, especially in relation to my kids, there, there was a struggle because for a long time and, and to your point where you talked about, like I, you were making progress with therapy and doing, having a diet in place and an exercise routine and everybody should just do that. And I felt much the same way, you know, there were diets where I was like, you know, it, it, people should not be eating gluten. Gluten is poisoning America. You know, I think I read like grain brain when it came out and yeah. it became this big thing with me of like, this is what's the bane of, uh, you know, Western societal addiction to grains and processed foods. And, you know, it, it, there was this idea of what my kids should be, how they should think. I had very, um, kind of stringent ideas about right and wrong 
And I had to give that up, man. I had to give up this sense of like, what is right for me is not necessarily right for everyone. But like my desire would be for everyone to find their sense of right and wrong and live in that way, which I think is more important than everyone adhering to what I find to be right and wrong. Because at the end of the day, people drink and it's not a problem for them. People go to McDonald's and it's not a problem for them. And if it's not a problem for them, I don't need to make it a problem for them. Do you know what I mean? Like 100%. What what has been a problem for me is not necessarily going to be a problem for my kids. I I'm I'm trying still to like it, it almost got to the point where I I turned everything into like flavors of ice cream. You know, like am I going to be mad at my kid if she prefers chocolate to french vanilla? I'm not going to be mad at her. She's allowed to prefer whatever flavor of chocolate she likes. And so I would take that out. And, you know, obviously there's extremes. If my kid came to me and tried to sell me on cannibalism and why cannibalism is right for her, I would have to have a serious talk with her like that. I would go like, well, there's going to be a lot of problems with wanting to eat people. Right. But like if you take it down into the normal everyday stuff, there's going to be a lot we disagree on. And I can't be absolutely right about any of that for them. I can only figure out what's what's true and right for me and try to live a moral life based on that, set a good example for them, and then hope for the best and expect that they're going to be different people. And then I apply that to my parents too and go like, God, a lot of my strife in life came from this idea that people were not behaving in the way I wanted them to behave. And really, I think it was really mostly that I wasn't behaving in the way that was appropriate for me to behave. Yeah. There's so much there that, and it all makes so much sense because I think that what you just said is so true. It's like, when we're not happy with ourselves. We look for people to point the finger at, right? Because it just makes us feel better about ourselves. Like again, going back to what we talked about, like towards the beginning of our conversation, like when we're feeling um, like low about ourselves, it's hard to like look in the mirror and say, you know what, like I got something I need to fix. It's easy to say, you know what, well that person's doing that, that person's doing that, so I guess okay. I'm, I'm okay. And I had a similar shift where you know you talked about that everybody should cut out gluten and everybody should diet a certain way. As a personal trainer, I think every the moment where a trainer goes from like good to great is the moment where they they really stop assuming that everybody else has the same like lifestyle and schedule and level of discipline that they may have because early in my career you know i would get parents with like four kids and you'll appreciate this and i'd be like just get up earlier get up at four make the time like what are you doing like health as well like all this stuff and then I realized like the more I trained people with kids and I was like, man, their schedule is kind of overwhelming. I mean, they're taking them to <laughs> a lot, yeah. you know, four different practices. They're, you know, sleepless nights. They got to make dinner and they got to do this. They got to do that. And so then it became, all right, how can I effectively help them just fit fitness into their schedule? Right. Because them being consistent is much better. Even them being consistent with just working out a few days a week is it's much better than them being erratic and you know working out a week straight and then not working out for a few weeks or a month. And I say that because it kind of goes in line with what we're saying in that not everybody 
is going to be like you. Right. Right. Not everybody's going to have that same passion for different things. And, and that's okay. And so I think it's important to, you know, obviously understand what makes you tick and what's important to you while also like trying to spend time with people that, you know, you also may not always agree with that might have different opinions than you that maybe have different lifestyle habits and or whatever, because that, that, then you learn from them, they learn from you. And it's not to say that you, you know, should, you should hang out with people that are treating you a certain way. I'm not saying that I'm saying that I think that we live in this world where we expect everybody to be like us and that we're the, the way we are is the way that everybody else should be. And it's just so far from the truth. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, it's a, you know, again, I, I think it goes back to that, what you were talking about in the beginning with the, with the personal responsibility, like the minute we give the power to somebody else, we take the power away from us. And I, I do think it's a tough sell to assume that uh, a guy who's 500 pounds, sedentary, subsisting on just almost strictly processed foods, you know, like maybe on the cheeseburger, there's some lettuce. And so you can say like, okay, well, that's a step in the right direction. Um to say that it is entirely up to you. I, you know, I almost want them to come to that understanding very slowly, right? Because you can you can take that point of view because it is just a point of view. There's no truth to it more than just a way of looking at the world. Um, and you can go too hard in the paint and and get onto some really unsustain unsustainable uh, program and just go like, it's all up to me. So now every day I've got to kill myself in, in physical activity. I've got to starve myself of food and I've got to experience this pain. And it's like, that might not, you might not get very far doing that. Right. And so I think there's, there's like a, almost a progressively uh, a steady way to get to there that is more than just shut up, bitch, which I understand worked for you in that moment. But I doubt that in that moment you overcame everything. No. You, you know what I mean? Like overcoming everything takes some time. It's slow. It's gradual. But I think that that kind of shift can be as much as shut up, bitch. Like I love when David Goggins says, shut up bitch to himself, right? Like he's telling his inner bitch to shut up. I love that. That doesn't mean that I can run a hundred miles today. I, I can't, I can't run three <laughs> miles today. I can't run. I can barely run across my yard, but I could do cardio for an hour and a half. You know, I could get my heart rate up to 150 and keep it there for an hour and a half, but I can't really run. And so I'm going to keep, you know, if I want to run, I'm, it's going to be the slow and steady progressive thing that I work towards. Um, so I, I really like shut up bitch, but I think that, um, for a guy who is morbidly obese and maybe even addicted to some drugs. And, uh, I think shut up bitch could be like, shut up bitch. I'm going to walk to the end of my driveway today. And then shut up, bitch. I'm going to walk to the street tomorrow. And then shut up, bitch. I'm going to walk to the corner 
the day after that, whatever it is, it doesn't have to be, you know, I'm responsible for the entire universe on day one and I can do anything. Right. Well, I think, you know, the underlying message of the conversation with my cellmate in jail was what was most important. Like the, the language, obviously being called a, you know, a bitch in jail or being called a bitch in general, is like something you don't want to be called. Right. right? Um, and also it was at a time where, I had started to understand that whatever was I was doing in my life wasn't working. And I really, for, for some reason, this guy had what I had. I mean, he was he was in jail. Not that I really wanted that, but he had this physique. He was ripped. I mean, he was in great shape and I wanted that. So I'm like, all right, I'm going to listen to whatever this guy tells me to do. And, um, and so, you know, I started to understand that, yes, this was my responsibility and my fault. And that has been the um, underlying theme of my own internal messaging when I go through hard times or when the pandemic happened or whatever, where it's like, it's not shut up, bitch. It's like, dude, nobody's coming to rescue you. Like you have to take full responsibility for this. You can't blame the government. You can't blame this. You can't blame that. Like that's not going to work anymore. Like you have to take full responsibility for where you're going. And I think that having that back up against the wall mentality, which was built when I was in jail has really served me because when I hit adversity, you know, I don't curl up in a ball, you know, I, I, I may take some time to process it, but then it's like, all right, how can I take action to like fi find a way to make my situation better? But it's also had a negative effect because it's all, I also, even when things are good, I still feel like my, my back's up against the wall, even if that makes sense to where I still feel like I have to push and push and do the next thing and do the next thing when really the best thing to do in that moment is just to chill and just like celebrate like where I've come. I don't know if that makes sense. Oh, no, it totally does. No, I I think that, that I think that that's right. I think, you know, it's hard for before you've made a lot of progress, it's hard to be responsible for everything in the past. That's sure. hard. But I think that the point of view that I think is necessary is I have to be responsible for everything in the future. And right. that's that's easier. And once you get there, then you can start applying it to the past. Then it's kind of easy to look back and go like, oh, I caused that and I caused this. Once you've <laughs> once you've taken ownership of moving forward, made progress, seen what you're capable of, it's easy to look back and go like, no, I fucked that situation up too. And here's how, you know, but I, but I do think, um, the better step isn't like you're 500 pounds. You caused it. You need to, uh, own, take ownership of having caused it. I don't think that's as valuable as you need to take ownership of everything moving forward. I think that is a more, more valuable peace right fucking cares about the past we're not existing in the past we're existing in the present and looking towards the future so own that period and if you want to look back at the past and own that later fine who cares but like you can't really change what happened in the past you can change how you look at it um and that might uh affect the way you move forward yeah there's, there's so much gold there and i think one of the things that that helped me with that was, um, you know, I think as addicts, we get focused on instant gratification. So for me, like I wanted to, you know, lose all the weight and get ripped as fast as possible. But like really before we, my journey started in jail from a health and fitness perspective, I was talking to Eric and I was like, how long is it going to take me to like get ripped? 
And he's like, how long you been fucking up your body? I'm like a long time. He's like, it's going to take a long time, Doug. And so <laughs> it made me realize that like it wasn't going to happen overnight, but I knew that I had a target. And for me, what helped was I had like a vision of who I wanted to be, you know, and not in any kind of like, like, like woo woo way. I just knew that I wanted to be fit. I wanted to have a better level of self-esteem. And I knew that if I did certain things every single day, that it would give me a chance to become that person. There was no, it wasn't going to guarantee that I would be there, but it gave me a chance. And so I, I would, and I would build off of, off of these, those small wins early on. I would build off of, you know, doing the one pushup for my knees and doing the one pushup for my feet and doing sets of pushups and stuff like that. And then that gave me the confidence to keep going. Right. And that gave me also understanding of what I needed to do to keep the progress going because I saw what was working for me. I knew that I had to get a certain level of number of steps in. I knew I had to do, you know, calisthenics. I had to eat a certain way. And I think what people don't realize is they're looking to go from like couch to 5K in a matter of seconds and thinking that's going to be the thing that builds their self-confidence. And what I've experienced, and I know like a lot of other who have people have experienced from making these big transformations is I find the biggest levels of confidence come from like going from zero to one, zero yeah. to two. It's like getting yourself out of a place where you, your life feels so dark or you feel so defeated and just having the courage to get up and start moving again. Yeah. And if, I think that in itself is like one of the biggest levers you can pull to build confidence. No, I totally agree. And, and for anyone out there whose goal is a 5k, Get ready to set another goal right when you finish the 5K. Like as you're crossing the crossing the finish line, get ready to fucking start something new because if you don't want to go back to what you were doing before you started your 5K goal, like it's that's like for me, I want to have new goals all the time. I want to be constantly making goals or just I get static and I start to relapse, you know, and revert. And it's like that's not fun, you know. Um, I do have a, a, a question that I'm dying to ask you, which is within the structure of jail with Eric, like, by, by the way, fucking thank God for Eric. I feel like what a great celly to have. You know what I mean? Like you're working <laughs> out with this Adonis. Um, I understand leaving would have terrified me to no end. What did you do? What was your program? What was your mindset? How did you act in the real, quote unquote, real world once all those confines were lifted? It was tough, man, because, you know, going to like when I got out of jail. So when I went to court, first of all, my sentence was um, he's, I went to court in September 30th of 2008. He said, the judge sentenced me to five years, everything suspended, but 90 days, meaning if I messed up, I could have potentially gone back and done the full five years, five years probation, 200 hours of community service, all kinds of fines. But he also sentenced me to drug classes. So that to me was like my outpatient treatment. Like I didn't go to AA. I didn't go to NA. Not that I was ever against that. I just, that wasn't my part of my path. Like I just knew that I got out of jail. I was going to move in with my grandparents who have been very instrumental in my life and in my transformation. And they they gave me some great structure. They gave me this level of, um, of love with also accountability. And what they did was they're like, hey, you can move in here. Um, you don't have to pay rent. We'll pay for your food. We'll give you spending money. Um, but here's the, the deal. You're going to bring us receipts for any money we give you. And if it doesn't match up with um, what you told us it's for, you're out. You're gonna come home at a certain time. You're gonna have. You're gonna work to get a job. You're gonna work out. You're gonna do all the the things that they knew was gonna help me 
um, change. But if I didn't follow those things, it was going to result in me not being able to live there anymore. Had that in place, had the outpatient like drug rehab where it's just kind of like you go to like a class a few days a week, you got to pass drug tests. And I don't know if it was a few days a week or once, I forget what it was, but something where, you know, you go and you would sit like similar, I'm, I'm sure in like treatment and talk about like addiction and stuff. So that gave me another level of accountability. Um, and then being on probation where you're having to report to a probation officer was an, another added level of accountability because I was mortified of going back to jail. So I was like the guy that just kind of did everything I needed to do from that perspective and made sure that I was in compliance with parole and probation. As far as like dealing with a lot of the emotional stuff that I hadn't really learned to deal with outside of jail, like I mentioned you know, before, I was always escaping. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. In jail, I was thankful enough that I was in there a, a long enough time that I was able to reestablish behavior to emotion to where I got used to, if I got angry, I would work out. If I got upset, I would work out or I'd journal or I'd run or whatever the case may be. So that when I got out, when I still was overwhelmed with stress, uncertainty, fear, I would find ways to, to exercise. And that became actually a great way for me to process some of the pain where I, when I would run, I would like think about what would make me angry or I would think about like some of the stuff in my past. I mean, I know like we can't change the past, but there was a lot that I had to process there that I was still, I was holding on to for periods of my life. Um, so that was effective. Changing the people that I spent time with was instrumental. I mean, I, I talk a lot now. I mean, as much as I say, you should definitely be having conversations and spending time with people that are different than you. I think you got to, for me, what really helped was spending time with people that had common futures and not common pasts. Because I think what happens to a lot of people is I they'll say- I fucking love that, by the way. Common futures. That's awesome. Yeah. Well, and I think what why, the reason I think it's important is because a lot of times we'll stay in friendships or in inner circles because we've known that person for 15 years. We partied with that person for 10 years. So we feel some sense of, loyalty to a certain friend or a certain friend group. And it wasn't that I felt that these people were inherently bad people. I just knew that the last time I spent a good amount of time with them, I got into some, you know, shady, you know, situations. And the reason, the main reason I knew it was time for me to kind of move on from those friend groups was I, as I got out of jail and I started to make progress in my health and fitness and you know, I went from like reading like High Times magazine before I went to jail to now I'm like reading men's muscle and fitness, men's health, stuff like that, that I didn't have anything in common with them anymore. So I'd be, I'd be, I'd be around them, but it would feel like an awkward first date where they're like going out and getting high and they're like, you want to come? I'm like, no, of course not. But, and I would just be sitting there like figuring out how I'm going to get my protein in. Right. And so it just got to a point where I was like, man, like, this is just weird. Like I, it's not even enjoyable for me to, to be able to spend time with these people. So I started to spend more time alone and hang out with my grandparents at home and watch TV and stuff like that and learn to work on my inner self and what I actually wanted in certain relationships. Um, 
you know, being of service has definitely been something that was very helpful for me where, um, you know, when I first became a trainer, I found this new high in helping other people use fitness to change their lives in the same way that Eric helped me. So that was important. Um, spirituality has been instrument was instrumental, but not until like later on in my life to where like around the same time I was talking about earlier when I was struggling with the external validation and fitness piece where I, I just, people were telling me in my life, they're like, you need something else. Like you need some spirituality in your, in your life, whatever it is, because like, you just seems like that part of you is missing. And then having a relationship with God and becoming a Christian was very helpful in me understanding that even though God wasn't, or even though I wasn't proud of what I had done in my past, God was because he was able to use that to help me transform my life and then to be able to do the work that I was doing to help others. And then that, that, you know, helped inspire me to improve the relationship with my mom and forgiveness and all that stuff I talked about earlier. And then the other thing, um, there's so many things, but the last thing I'll say is just this idea that it's, it's up to me and that I, if I focused on the version of me which is why I love the kill, the killed my, I killed kill my clone thing that you say. It's like, if I focused on the version of me that was in the past before jail, and I focused on that and just thought about that the whole time, I would lose because I would begin to justify certain things and I would be able to assume that I'm going to be a certain way. And then my actions would start to match the way I thought in my head and I would end up back down that path. Right. But I knew that if I could just do the best that I could every single day to do the exact things I knew I needed to do on that day, whether it was the certain people I needed to stay away from, whether it was certain activities from a health and fitness perspective, you know, certain foods, whatever, that it gave me a chance to become that person I wanted to be. And that it allowed me to become a better version of myself each and every day. And it was super incremental. Um, as far as my relationship with my cellmate, he unfortunately passed away last year, um, which was really tough for me. Initially, when I got out, he, he we would write letters to each other. And there was times where I got out like in the winter time. And part of my routine in jail was, you know, doing calisthenics and also running. And so in the winter, it was like it was cold and I didn't feel like running. So I was in one of the letters I told him, I was like, dude, it's cold. I don't feel like running. And he obviously said what he, I expected him to say and, you know, said like, quit being a bitch or something, something to that effect and being like, you know, I, I build machines, get out there and buy some sweatpants and go run. And I was just like, okay, you know, and one out, <laughs> out got sweatpants and started running. And we actually ended up meeting up and doing a couple like, actual workouts together where I was actually able to keep up with what he was doing. Oh, wow. It was, yeah. Which was really cool. And then, you know, I, he knows that, or he knew that, you know, he, he helped save my life. I dedicated my first book to him and, um, he just kind of went down a different path, unfortunately, but I guess the, the silver lining in him passing away was, um, I remember the, the moment he passed his mom, like reached out to me on Facebook and was just like, Hey, you know, Eric, obviously you knew Eric, my son really well. And he passed away and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she invited me to come speak at the funeral and, and then I had family, like a family member reach out to me, which was on, this is honestly one of the coolest things in that she was like, you know, I was looking through and, you know, I was fi finding out who he was connected to. And I somehow saw your name. And then I saw that you were, you know, were doing podcasts and then I would listen to them. And I, sh I heard you share this, his story and it was gave, it made me happy because I realized like the, it got to let me see like the good side of him that we always knew. 
And I just never knew that doing all of this would lead to that. Right. Yeah. And I think that's at the, you know, to tie this all together, it's like, that's kind of what this, this message has been, right. It's like, you know, you don't change everything overnight. You don't have, you know, a 10 year, 10 year level of success overnight, but it's just doing, it's just taking responsibility for the here and now and doing everything you can that day. And then the next day doing the same thing and the same thing and the same thing. And then all that stuff starts to stack up. Right. And just like bad habits can compound good habits compound as well. So beautiful, Doug. And I, and I, I really appreciate what you're doing and I'm truly grateful that you're, that you're doing what you're doing. So thank you so much. You're welcome, man. And thank you again for having me on. Absolutely. I look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good, brother. And now for the Q&A. Today's question comes from Daniel. Hi, Daniel. Daniel says, I am writing to say thanks for all the content you produce in the realm of fitness and fat loss and for the inspiration you provide for helping people like me navigate the complex and confusing landscape of eating and health. He says, uh, I've been on my fitness journey for some time now, working hard to form sensible habits and realistic goals to reduce my weight and lead a generally healthy lifestyle. He says, my question concerns that fundamental component, protein. So many times on your podcast, I've heard you and your guests talk about its benefits in all areas, body composition, weight loss, muscle building. He says, as a six foot tall, 38 year old man weighing around 98 kilos, um, so I don't know what that is for pounds for us in the U.S. It's times 2.2. 98 oh. times 2.2. Okay. Great. So 200. I'm not good with math. Okay. Six foot tall, 200 pounds. Yeah. Okay. Okay. He says, I'm working on a fat loss goal to shed around 18 kilos to be living with a healthy body weight range. Okay. He says... I've heard you talk about multi with multiple guests on the show that we have to prioritize protein consumption. My question concerns whether this amount relates to my current weight or my target weight. Should I be consuming the amount of protein needed for my current weight or target weight goal? Figuring this out would reduce some anxiety. I always feel it's a struggle to get enough protein in my diet from healthy sources. Such a good question question it's a, i've had a, so many people a, have this question it's a great question and it can get so complicated and, and like a dude who's 500 pounds does not need to eat 500 grams of protein a day that is not the case um where it gets slightly more complicated is when you have a higher uh, when you're more muscular and you're thinking like for me it's a little bit easier for me to just round up to what my weight is than to try to go like, okay, if I'm 12% body fat or 14% body fat minus that, really you want to be eating it. I mean, ultimately it depends if you're trying to build muscle and you're eating in a calorie surplus, you, you don't need to eat as much, honestly, like you still need to eat probably more than the average person does, but you don't need to eat your weight because your body's not going to be stealing those nutrients to do anything else. And so when you're in a caloric deficit and trying to reduce weight, you got to be pretty on that number, whatever it is. 
Honestly, my suggestion is to use some kind of an app to figure this out and calculate it and you type in everything. And um, there's an Instagram called Train Bloom who we've actually had on the podcast and he has a great calculator and it's free. If you go to his Instagram account, I think it's just at Train Bloom. Um, he has a pro so you would enter all your information into it and it will spit out the number of grams of protein you're supposed to eat really. Um, you should be eating, uh, f more closer to grams for, if you're very overweight for your, your target. Right. But I don't know when it gets into 18 kilos because it's because for me, my mind is always thinking of pounds. And if I was concentrating on losing 18 pounds, this would not affect my protein at all. But 18 mm -hmm. kilos is double that. So that's like probably closer to 40 pounds. And then maybe it would a little bit, but I don't know exactly because the, it does get really mathy. Okay. This yeah. stuff. And especially when we're talking about kilos, because then it's like 0.8 grams per kilo or something like that. And so I, I can't spit that number out. I'm not a calculator, but I would go to train bloom and do that math. And if not, I would just take the, the number you're aiming for and try to hit that. So if he's aiming for 70, uh, well, no, it's not, it's, that doesn't work out correctly. I don't know. 150 pounds. I would aim for 150 grams of protein. If that's so you, his target weight. You are, you're, okay, got it. More closer to the target than where you're at. Right. Because like you said, if someone's 500 pounds, they don't have to eat 500 grams of protein every day. That's a lot. Right. But also, I, you know, if he's 180 pounds or 190 pounds and he's in a caloric deficit, that extra protein's not going to harm him, mm -hmm. it, you know. Yeah. It, it does get very complicated. And I'm sorry, <laughs> I, I can't just give him a number. But I would say what I, I've done it a few times where I've gone like, I lost a little weight. Let me type it into Train Bloom. And usually Train Bloom gives me around the number I'm eating. And to be completely honest with you, I don't think of these numbers as absolutes. Like if I'm trying to eat 250 grams of protein a day and I only get 230, I'm not up at night sweating over this. And sometimes I get 260. Sometimes I'm a little higher and sometimes I'm a little lower. I am not measuring out an ounce of chicken before I go to bed to make sure I get every gram of protein. But I'm getting as close as possible while still trying to live a life where I'm not weighing my food constantly. I'm really trying not to weigh my food anymore, which has seemed to be good for the last year. Yeah, that's awesome. No, I get it. It's a little, it's a little complex. Go ahead. What were you going to say? If you are weighing your food, then weigh out the ounce of chicken, you know, that's yeah. okay too. I'm not saying you have to not do that, but if, if his ballpark is 150 grams to 180 grams, and I think I would think if he's eating anywhere near that much, cause that's a, that's a fair amount of protein that he's going to be okay. Yeah. Awesome. Okay, good. Well, hope that helps. Let us know if it does and how you do on your goal. Good luck to you with that. Thank you for sending in your question. For anyone else who wants to ask Ethan a question, we love to read your questions. You can email them to us. Hello at AmericanGlutton.net. <laughs> and I will send you 
where I would go to get the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. Love it. Thanks for listening to this episode of American Glutton. I'm Ethan Suplee. You can follow us on Instagram at American Glutton Podcast. Sincerely.